Matthew chapter 5, that's page 968 in the church Bibles and 1505 in the large print. Matthew uh, chapter 5. Well, last week, as we uh, began Matthew 5, uh, we introduced the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount uh, begins with a description of blessings. And before we look at this uh, word, uh, one way I want us to think about this is what would uh, define for you uh, the good life? If I was to say, what what is the good life? What would you say? Perhaps some of you may say, Uh, A happy family life, that's the good life. Or perhaps enough money uh, to be comfortable, that's the good life. I don't have to worry about paying my bills or anything like that. Perhaps for some, you might say, well, a satisfying career, that's that's the good life. For some, you may say marriage. Others may say no marriage. Others may say home ownership. If I can just own my own home... That'll be, that'll be it. I would have made it. Perhaps others like more exciting things than that. Maybe some of you are uh, into uh, rushes of adrenaline. Maybe the good life is excitement, like you want to bungee jump or something like that. Some people go for the good life with drugs and things, don't they? Perhaps for you it's just a life of leisure. No work, no commitments, nothing to worry about. That's, that's the good life. Well, most of these things, in fact, all of them, maybe, well, definitely drugs accepting, uh, are fine things to have, but none of them are what really can make us happy. You see, the, the good life, or a life where we're absolutely satisfied, is always an unreachable goal, if we look at it in those kind of ways. But what if we ask God, who made us, surely he should know, what a good life is. And Jesus, the man who is God, calls this life blessed. We read of uh, the blessed life at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. Uh, Beatitudes, uh, by the way, is not, uh, it, it literally means blessing. It's from a Latin word, beatus, and beatus means blessing. So the Beatitudes are the, the blessings. And in the Bible, the word blessing uh, actually has two meanings, uh, and they're from two different words. The first meaning is to praise. So when we say, bless the Lord, O my soul, we're saying praise the Lord. That's one uh, way of using bless. But there's another way of using bless, and this is what is used here. And in some translations, you might read the word happy. But this is, is deeper than happy for us. Today, happy uh, is, is, is a feeling, isn't it? It's something that's based on circumstances. Stuff that's going well makes us happy. It's deeper than that. And a, a way of describing blessing uh, is like this. It's a life to be congratulated from an eternal perspective. So in other words, at the end of our life, when we look back on life, these are the sorts of of, of characteristics that we will say are blessed. 
Because when we look at them straight away, they are blessed, but all of these beatitudes to the world, they wouldn't say this is what the good life is. But when we look back from God's eternal perspective, this is what the good life is. This is the life of blessing. It's also deeper than happiness in the sense that this is where, with this kind of character we see here, where we meet our deepest longings, our deepest needs. And we meet them partly now, but totally in the future, in glory, in heaven. You see, blessedness is independent of circumstances. It's deeper than just how we feel. In fact, these are not feelings. These are characteristics of Christians. These are not natural tendencies. These beatitudes are spiritual realities. These don't exist outside of a relationship with God. The beatitudes describe what Christians are. They're not a list of things to do. They're not things we can just pick off the shelf and say, this week I'm going to work on being hungry for righteousness. This Next week I'm going to look at being merciful. That's not how we look at the Beatitudes. They are descriptions of what we are. Not what, they're not things to do. This is how God made us. Now, of course, we're not perfect. But in all of these characteristics, we will be growing as Christians. Because this is what we are. Remember last week we, when we looked at the, how to read the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the Christian life. It's the life of a Christian, how a Christian lives. And it begins with, this is what Christians are. That's the Beatitudes. And then outflowing from that is, and therefore this is how Christians live. And there's, there, there's lots of application in the Beatitudes. But mainly the application is this. Be what you are in Christ. Be what you are in Christ. And also, just as the, the last kind of bit of introduction to these Beatitudes, there's, there's progression as we go through these. As I said, you can't just pick one off the shelf and say, well, I'm going to do this today. They all rely on each other. There's a building up as we go through. And it begins with the first one. From the first Beatitude flows all of the others. And in fact, the whole of this Sermon on the Mount holds together on a person who is this first beatitude. And that is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So when we look back from eternity, as God looks upon his people, the blessed life, the good life in God's world are those who are poor in spirit. And what we're going to do as we look at this beatitude is first of all, who are blessed? And then secondly, what is the blessing? So first of all, who are blessed? The poor in spirit. Now let's, we need to break this uh, phrase down into its parts. First of all, we need to look at this word poor. The Bible talks much about the poor. Uh, it's first mentioned in the Old Testament. And it refers in, at the beginning of the Old Testament, when you read the word poor, to the materially poor. Those that didn't have enough and therefore were dependent on others 
to provide for their needs. It depended on your income. There were people that were uh, poor but could still just about get by. And there were the poor who couldn't provide for themselves. And in the Old Testament, there is in, it's full of instruction of how God's people are to care for the poor. If you read through Leviticus, for example, which I know uh, some of you are reading at the moment, you'll see that there is instruction there for caring for the poor. God has a concern for those that cannot provide for themselves. But as the Old Testament progresses, whilst God's concern for the poor never changes, the use of the word poor expands from just describing the literal material poor to having spiritual overtones. In other words, material poverty pictures a spiritual reality. Here's a couple of examples. King David. King David was Israel's king. He was not materially poor. Yet in the Psalms, he talks like this. Psalm 34, verse 6. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. Psalm 40, verse 17. But as for me, says King David, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. You see, in these verses, David is describing his poverty before God. Not his material poverty, but how he did not have in himself what was needed to be right with God. And then listen to God speaking in Isaiah. In Isaiah here, God is describing the kind of people that really are blessed. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The word lowly there is another way of describing the poor. Or Isaiah 66 verse 2. These are the ones I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Those words there, lowly, contrite, humble, they're all ways of describing what Jesus says here, the poor in spirit. You see here, poverty is a realisation of the need, not for material things, but being right with God. And Jesus uses poor in this same way here. He's using poor with spiritual overtones. This isn't blessed are those who are poor materially. Because the kingdom of God is also for the rich. I mean, it, it is true, Jesus said, it's, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But the reason is because having a physical poverty helps us to realise more the spiritual reality of being dependent. It's not the poverty itself materially that's blessed, but it tends to be the way that poverty helps people realise their need for God because they know what dependence is. Which is why it's so hard, I think, in, in our society where really we are rich materially for people to see that they need God. But this is talking about the poor in spirit. That's not poor materially. It's not poor intellectually. It's not poor-spirited or mean-spirited. This isn't talking about the Holy Spirit. It's 
within us. It's our own inner being. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And again, to dig deeper into what poor means will help us here. In the New Testament, there's two different words for poor. And the way to describe them is like this. One is what we would understand as the working poor, and the other is the begging poor. Now, the working poor were those that could work, but had a low income that meant they really struggled to get by. They may not have had three square meals a day. It may have been one meal a day. It may, they may have struggled. They may have had no meals someday, but they had enough just about to scrape by. That's the working poor. But the begging poor are very different. They have nothing. In the New Testament, you'll often see them described as the poor, the blind, the lame. Those are the begging poor. And those people have no means to provide for themselves. They are absolutely dependent on other people to provide for them. So Jesus talks about them. For example, in the parable of the great feast, when the people won't come to the feast, he says, uh, the, the master of the feast says, go and get the crippled, the poor, the blind, the lame. A group of people that couldn't come to the feast on their own, they would have to be carried. That's the begging poor. And that's the word Jesus uses here. He's using the word begging poor, not working poor, so that he's describing somebody that is absolutely dependent on somebody else to provide for their needs. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, we are spiritually absolutely dependent on God to provide for us. Someone who is poor in spirit recognises what they are before God and realises they have nothing to offer him. They're not the working poor who can provide just a little bit, a small token. No, we are completely bankrupt before God. And that's how the the Bible describes us in in lots of different ways. Here's an example. First, maybe a lot of you know, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned, and have fallen short of the glory of God. In 1 John 1.5 we read that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So God is absolutely holy. No darkness at all. Completely perfect. And we fall short of that glory. We come short. All it takes is, is one sin to fall short, isn't it? We can never, never pay back one Uh, sin, because that means we'll never be perfect again. We'll never reach that standard. But we know it's worse than one sin. We're not condemned because of one sin. We're condemned because we are sinners. It's what what we are. Every part of us is tainted by sin. The whole way we think, the way we act, the way we talk, purposefully, accidentally, unknowingly. In fact, Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 says, even our righteous acts are like filthy rags, they're tainted with sin. Even the good things we do are tainted by sin. We're so far short of God that we are spiritually bankrupt. Nothing we can do. In the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18, we get a good description there of the extent of our debt. In Matthew 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant really is talking about forgiveness. 
The purpose of the parable is that we ought to forgive because of how much we've been forgiven. But in order to get to that point, we read uh, how this servant has a huge debt. Look at, um, if you want to turn to it, you can, just a few, well, quite a few chapters ahead of Matthew chapter 5. But Matthew chapter 18 and verse, uh, from verse 23 says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay everything back. The servant's master took pity on him and cancelled the debt and let him go. Now, notice how much this servant owed. It was 10,000 bags of gold. It was a a ridiculous sum of money. One bag of gold was 20 years' wages. So here we have 200,000 years' wages that this man owed. There was no way he could do what he said. He said, I'll pay back everything. He couldn't pay back everything. Even if he uh, never had any expenses and worked, he would have to work 200,000 years to pay this man back. It was a ridiculous amount of money and the point is that there was no way he could pay it back. And look what he did. He begged. And the reason he he had to beg was because he was destitute. He wasn't the working poor. He was the begging poor. The problem with the servant man here was he thought he was the working poor. He didn't realise how destitute he was. He said, I'll pay back everything, but he couldn't. And the, the master had pity on him and cancelled the debt. But that's what's described for us. We are that much in debt to God. When we see the God who is light and in whom is no darkness at all, and we see ourselves and the awful extent of our sin, we realise we face God's wrath and we have no hope in ourselves to be right. There is no possible way that we can pay this debt. And when we think, we thought at the beginning of the good life, now often the, the good life in our society is often associated with wealth or money. Because money can get you what you want. And this can creep into the church. We can think, well I have some spiritual wealth that can gain me credit. Perhaps we think, in a small way, I do deserve to be in God's kingdom. But there's nothing you can bring. There is nothing in any way that you can add to your salvation or to buy your way in. You, you can't rely on a profession of faith that you made years ago. You can't rely on an education or your intellect. You can't rely on your good deeds, perhaps outweighing the bad deeds. Or even just cancelling some of them. You can't rely on your, your baptism, or your Christian parents, or your wealth or possessions. You can't rely on your church membership. When we stand before God, none of these things we can bring with us and say, this makes me worthy. I can't bring anything, even something small, to God that says, I deserve to be part of your kingdom. I am not the working poor. I am the begging poor. I am totally bankrupt. And I have nothing 
to offer God. Face to face with God, we are all beggars. And so here is a definition of the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those who recognise they are facing God's wrath because of sin and are completely bankrupt in his sight and they cannot save themselves. We read something similar in Luke chapter 18 in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In this parable, Jesus, it says, spoke to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. They thought they could bring something to God. They thought they were worthy of salvation. They thought they could, they could merit their way in. But who goes home justified in the parable? It is not the Pharisee who lists all the things he's done and all the ways he's better than everybody else, especially the tax collector. But this tax collector that this man looks down on, Jesus says he went home justified. Or in the language of this beatitude, he went home as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The one who stood before God and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. And notice, he begged. He begged. The tax collector begged God. He recognised he had nothing to bring. And he pleaded for mercy. Well, the realisation of our bankruptcy before God impacts our whole character. What does the poor in spirit look like? Well, the poor in spirit is an absence of pride. It's an absence of self-reliance. It's an absence of self-assurance, of self-assertiveness, of self-anything. And it's the opposite of our self-obsessed, selfie culture, where you can even buy a stick to take pictures of yourself. And that's what social media has so often become, isn't it? It's become, look at me, look at what I've done, Look at my life. And people even photoshop their lives on Instagram and say, look at what I want you to think my life is, but it isn't really. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? Now, I'm not going to put down social media as such here, except to say this. Just let's be careful what we promote. Are we promoting ourselves? Or rather, can we use social media for something better. How about this? Look at Jesus. Look at his life. Look at what he has done. That's the attitude of the poor in spirit. Because when we come face to face with God, we realise that actually there's not much to look at here. When we're face to face with God, a selfie is the last picture we want to put on Instagram. You see, truly this turns the world's thinking on its head. All of the Beatitudes, in fact, are the total opposite of the world's thinking. It's, someone described it as, as, it, it's as if someone's gone into the, the shop window and turned all the price tags upside down. It's a distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian. And the Christian is poor in spirit. 
So the poor in spirit are those that recognise they are facing God's wrath because of sin, are completely bankrupt in his sight and cannot save themselves. And the result is an attitude of humility, which uh, one writer called A.W. Pink said is the humility is the first letter in the Christian alphabet. So as we examine our hearts in light of this beatitude, what does it look like practically? Well, first of all, the poor in spirit wonder at Jesus. They wonder at Jesus. Let's not lose the amazement that he has saved us. When we realise what we are before God, how, how sinful we are and how holy he is. We should always be amazed that he has saved me and saved you. It's truly a, a, an awesome act of grace, isn't it, that we are saved. The poor in spirit never lose that wonder at the glory and, the, and as we were seeing at the beginning, the triumphs of his grace. Practically, how does it look? The poor in spirit uh, is a person of prayer. If the, if the poor in spirit is a beggar, prayer continues this attitude because we are always realising we depend on God in our whole Christian lives. We're dependent on him for salvation, but also to keep going. And any success we have in our Christian life is all glory to God. We are totally dependent on him. The poor in spirit recognise they must pray because we're dependent on God. The poor in spirit don't complain. I mean, when you realise what we are before God and what we deserve, we have no right to complain about what God has given us. Anything more than hell is more than we deserve. The poor in spirit do not complain. The poor in spirit obey the Lord. They are poor enough to see that obedience is the way to blessedness. That their own way is foolish, but God's way is best. And the poor in spirit point to Jesus Christ. They point to Jesus and they say, look at him. Now, as we think of this, we all of us should realise we can't leave this building and say, I didn't need to listen to that. Yes, I know. I've got poor in spirit down. I'm, I'm there. That's a sign that you're not. But we know, I, I should think, that we are not, we, we haven't got this completely. We know we do struggle with these things. And some of you may be thinking, well, if this is the characteristic of a Christian, then what am I? Friends, we, we grow in these areas. We're not perfect in these areas, but we should be showing this in our character. And as we move on in our Christian lives, we grow in this. And as we uh, said last week, that, uh, as in the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, this is, this is a message of, of what one day we will be perfectly in glory. We grow in it now, we will be perfect in glory. So in the context of eternity, we see this is the blessed life. Why is it blessed? Well, that's the blessing, isn't it? What is the blessing? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we read uh, the words, uh, theirs is, it is theirs exclusively. I.e. only the poor in spirit, not those who think they're good enough, 
receive the kingdom of heaven. Only the poor in spirit. It's really only those who realise they're bad enough, not good enough. And we've talked a lot over the last number of weeks in Matthew about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is God's rule and reign spiritually now and physically it will be in eternity. And in this beatitude, in the first and the last one, is the only ones where we see that the blessing is right now and not will be. So if you look at the ones in between, you see they will be, they will be comforted, will inherit the earth, will be filled and so on. Here we see it right now. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That means that right now, here and now, the kingdom of heaven is ours if we are poor in spirit. But it's also future. Because also, right, because right now, we have wonderful blessings. As a Christian, we, we are right with God. We have forgiveness of sins. We have Christian family. We have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We have all of these things. And we, then we have heaven too. We look forward to being with Jesus in eternity, in a perfect world, forever. And that's for the poor in spirit. And the wonderful thing is, it's, it's all free. It's all free. And it must be free. Because you can't buy it, because you are bankrupt before God. When you become a, a citizen of a new country, you always have to bring something to the table. A length of residency, a marriage certificate, money an exam. But to become of a citizen of heaven, you must bring nothing. Nothing at all. And because of pride, this can be so difficult, can't it? Because we want to bring something. Surely there's something I can, I can bring to the table. But God says, no, you are bankrupt before me. And that's exactly where I want you. Because in that state, I saved you. And so God makes the door to the kingdom of heaven so low that the only way in is on our knees crawling, pleading with God for mercy, trusting in Jesus to save us. As the words uh, in our hymn we're about to sing says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. Well, let's sing that hymn, Rock of Ages. Let's stand and we'll sing together and we'll consider the fact that we can bring nothing to God, but yet in Christ he has given us salvation. Let's stand and sing.